Hi, thanks for coming today. Um, we have our newest assistant curator, Melissa Ho, here today to speak about um, Frank Stella. And um, I don't have my notes. So I hope I don't get anything wrong <laughs> about your background. But um, uh, Melissa is an artist as well as an art historian. And she studied um, at Princeton and at uh, UPenn. And um, prior to coming to the Hirshhorn, she has taught studio art and art history at several schools, including the Tyler School of Art and the Corcoran here in DC. And um, she worked as an exhibition consultant on um, the MoMA uh, show Color Charts a few years ago. And um, I, that might be it on my notes, <laughs> but I'll turn it over to her now. Thanks. Thank you. Um, well, thanks very much for coming out. Um, as Jenny said, my name is Melissa Ho. I'm the new assistant curator here at the Hirshhorn Museum, uh, brand new. I'm just wrapping up my very first week today, and this is my first gallery talk here. So I couldn't be more thrilled to be here, and I thank you for joining me. Um, the work of art I chose to talk about today is Arundel Castle by Frank Stella. Uh, this is a painting that was made in 1959. And that moment of the late 1950s is a really um, fascinating and consequential period of transition uh, in the story of American art, um, the story of the New York art world, and, and more particularly um, Frank Stella's own both artistic development and his uh, career development, because it's with this body of work, Arundel Castle was one of 23 paintings in a group that came to be known very quickly, uh, for obvious reasons, as the black paintings, um, that he made in the winter of 58-59, um, and it was this group of, of paintings that really launched his public career, and um, sort of for all of the future of our historical time, it seems, um, sort of put him at the center of, of critical discourse um, in terms of post-war art. Um, so why is that? Why were these works at that time and still considered so significant? Um, we have to sort of time travel back to the 1950s and remember that by this moment, um, abstract expressionism is really established it's, a, it's the dominant uh, mode of modern painting, uh, certainly in the US and spreading around the world. Um, so what that means is artists like Jackson Pollock, um, William de Kooning, uh, Clifford Still, and of course both of those last two artists, there's fabulous examples of their work elsewhere on this floor. Um, but those paintings that in the 40s had seemed and were at that time very radical in their huge scale, in their all-over composition, in the way they uh, used a very, very active uh, gestural um, uh, brushstroke, uh, had been so radical that they initially had not been barely recognizable as art. But by the mid-1950s, they are the establishment. Um, and uh, they are not only accepted, but they're being pursued widely by collectors and increasingly museums. Um, and more to the point, they've been, they are being imitated uh, by young painters and art students all across the country. Um, and Stella was really no exception. Um, when he was a college student learning painting, um, he very much was working in an abstract gestural mode, and you can absolutely see a direct influence from painters like de Kooning and Klein, 
but by the time he graduates, he graduates from Princeton in 1958, he moves to New York, and he, that's where he really decides to begin his life as an artist. And he begins to wrestle more seriously with the question of how do I, and this is you know, possibly the question for young artists, of course, is how do I absorb and um, benefit from my predecessors, but ultimately, uh, how do I knock them off? How can I uh, work, uh, work away from them? Um, and he sees that there's, uh, there's the choice of sort of um, following directly in their footsteps and possibly falling into a kind of sterile mannerism or mere imitation, um, or he's going to have to take a radical step away. Um, and one of the artists who helps him in this problem, this challenge of uh, how do I go on as a painter after, after the, how powerful abstract expressionism was, was Jasper Johns. And Johns is about five or six years older than Stella. He had already um, had a solo show at Castelli by 58. Um, that's a show that Stella saw. Uh, those works include things like John's famous Target paintings, um, his flag paintings. Uh, you're, you know, many of you may have seen an example or two of these. There's usually a flag or a Target up at the National Gallery. Um, and the flag in particular was of interest to Stella when he saw it. Um, there are two things. One was he saw in John's painting a solution to how do you make a painting uh, with a predetermined plan, because John's, of course, had just, even if you aren't familiar with this work, basically what it is, it's a painting that exactly conforms to the design of an American flag. So he took this pre-existing motif that everybody's familiar with, and that obviously he wasn't claiming any authorship to, um, it already existed in the world, and made it, uh, allowed, took that and from there determined the size and the composition of his work. And that really interested Stella, because of course abstract expressionism was all about in the moment, improvisation, sort of creating the work uh, on the surface of the painting as you went. Um, so the idea of working from a pre-chosen um, clear motif uh, was something that interested Stella. And then also, uh, and this is something that he's acknowledged, he was very taken by the stripes in John's flag paintings. And he liked the sort of simplicity and the repetition of that uh, motif. Um, so he, uh, from there, he started working on these black paintings, which as you can see, follow very, very simple, repetitive uh, patterns based on the stripe or the band or the brush stroke, depending on how you want to think about it. Um, and uh, most of them are symmetrical. They all follow simple, repetitive patterns. Um, sometimes they're arrived at through con you know, concentric shapes, um, inversions. You can see a simple uh, flip in here between the top and the bottom. Um, and all of them use this standard bandwidth, so to speak, that's uh, simply a result of the, the brush that he chose. Um, and this is the other reference for Stella house painting. Um, the paint that he's using here is common household uh, enamel paint. Um, so it's not artist paint. Um, and he's using a household uh, painter's brush of a standard two and a half inch width. And from there, the width of the brush is determining the width of the stripe. The width of the stripe is determining 
ultimately the width of the canvas. He, he drew out all of these patterns in advance. He talked about it in terms of diagramming and plotting, which of course is not how an artist um, like de Kooning or Pollock would have thought about their work. Pollock made a big point of saying, I do no sketches, I work directly. That was sort of almost a, of, on an ethical, um, almost an ethical question for him. Um, the spontaneity of the performance. Stella is taking a 180 from that and saying, this work is not about being a record of a performance. I want this work to not make you think about how it was made, but to sort of hit you visually in this very direct, simple, immediate way. Um, and one of the ways he emphasizes, one is the composition, which is uh, all over, which of course is a term that started being used in the prior generation with people like Pollock who worked all sections of the canvas sort of equally. Um, this is taken to uh, an ex extreme here with Stella. Um, and that's part of them wanting to get away from what painters like to talk about in terms of as part-to-part -part composition. So in a conventional picture, you would have a foreground and a background and a figure and a ground and your eye is meant to go to sort of the most important part of the composition first and move away from there. Stella is saying every part of this canvas, every part of this surface is as important as any other part. It should all hit you equally at once. Um, the other thing he's doing is, well, there's scale. There's the fact that this is a very imposing um, object. It looms over you. It's about, it's over 10 feet tall, six feet across, and it's also unusually deep. Um, most Painting stretchers are typically maybe one and a half or two inches deep. Um, Stella, partly for budgetary reasons, I think, but I think also it was an aesthetic choice. He constructed his stretchers out of one by three pieces of wood um, and just sort of slapped them together. So he didn't, he, did, he sort of did away with the niceties of having uh, nice stretcher bars with a quarter round and all that neatness. Um, he, uh, in keeping with this, uh, idea of all the materials being from the hardware store, there's a sort of brutal object-like quality to this piece. It almost, the scale of it is ar almost architectural and it feels heavy and slab-like. Um, and that connection between painting and object is uh, one of the real um, uh, shifts that's happening in art at that time and is pointing to the 60s and full-blown minimalism as exemplified here with uh, Donald Judd Stack. Um, the other thing I'll say is that Stella was actually employed as a house painter around this time when he first moved to New York. Uh, he supported himself by uh, painting apartments and he was working for a really um, like low-balling contractor who tended to get all the bids for working for slumlords who were being ordered by the courts to repaint these tenements. Um, and the title, Arundel Castle, although at first blush, it might seem almost like an aristocratic reference. And there is, in fact, uh, I found out Arundel Castle in England, I think from the 15th or 16th century, but that's not Stella's Arundel Castle. Stella's Arundel Castle, it's a reference to a tenement building in the Bedford-Stuyvesant um, uh, neighborhood in Brooklyn. And there's several others in the black painting series that reference either buildings or public, um, public parks or other landmarks in these very working class neighborhoods in the outer boroughs of New York. Um, and that's the 
the milieu that the Jan Frank Stella, he's only 22 when he starts the series, 20, 22, 23, that's sort of where he's uh, doing all of his day work, is going out and painting these apartments. Um, the thing that strikes me about this painting now, looking at it uh, in 2011, is... Uh, it's usually talked about, as I mentioned before, as the sort of missing link between high New York school painting and minimalism of the 1960s. And it, it is indeed that. But I think because so much of Stella's later work, including you know, immediately after this series, become much more hard edge, and with the black paintings, he's not even... There's not even a pencil drawing underneath. It was done, he, would, he diagrammed it on paper first, but then the whole thing was executed freehand. And there's, there's, it's interesting for me to see this and realize how um, not minimalist in feel these, these paintings have, at least for me. They're not nearly as mechanical and impersonal as uh, sometimes the rhetoric around them would have you think. Um, in particular, you really can see um, the multiple applications. He did about four or five coats. Um, and although he was really striving to be uh, controlled and deliberate, it's still not hard edge. It's still not super precise. If he had wanted a super sharp edge, he could have used masking tape, which he goes on to do. Um, he could have maybe at least used a straight edge and sort of draw and fill in. He's not doing that. He's letting us see this um, waver of his touch. So while it's not Jackson Pollock um, in terms of the uh, more, the, all the nuances of every flick of the wrist. It's kept on a much more quiet level. I think there's still something quite uh, uh, human about it. And um, in many ways, you can put it maybe even closer towards a late Rothko black painting in terms of its moodiness and its luminosity than um, a later Stella or a mid-60s um, Judd. So I hope that I've sort of thrown out some ideas that to start with. And if you have any questions or just comments, please feel free to just speak up. Glenn. I've got a question about the way we um, sort of take in this painting. You were talking about all the elements hitting you simultaneously. But I find that personally for me, there are a couple of things that happens since you have the the form sort of radiating out from these slices in the middle of the top and the bottom halves, um, I find that my eye goes both to the tips of the most slender rectangles and then also to this larger diamond form that's formed, that's implied by all of, all of the corners. And for me, one of the things I like about this painting is sort of this tension between sort of these these rectangles and the almost um, phantom diamond form and then the idea of it being a really flat painting. But I don't know, how do you see it? That's a really good observation because um, Stella always talked about wanting to flatten um, things out more and remove any sense of illusionism from it. But 
there is absolutely still illusionism in this painting because you point out the, those right angle corners where you have these um, you know, concentric rectangular shapes are forming triangles and then a diamond. So there's, it's again, it's not as, um, it's, it's not, he, you know, some famous Stella quotes or things like, my painting, um, what you see is what you see you know, that he had this, and this was typical of artists of his generation, not just abstract artists, but if you also think of pop artists of the 60s, like Warhol, who said, everything about my work is surface, you know, and it's, if you want to see me, it's, it's all there on the surface. And in a weird way, there's a similarity between pop and, you know, for lack of a better term, minimalist painting in the claims of it being straightforward, neutral, um, mechanical or quasi-mechanical, but in fact there being all these layers of um, of visual activity as well as um, references to other things, like the fact that he had named this after a tenement building. Well, that must mean something to him, you know. As much as he's, he his his spoken statements were much more about it being neutral, um, straightforward, black. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say about that? Oh, um, well, another famous Stella quote along the same lines was that he wanted to keep the paint as good as it was in the can. No fussing, no mixing, none of this idea of like Rothko or Newman who really made, it was a point of pride for them to create a color, whether on the palette or through careful layering. Stella is using common, you know, household paint straight out of the can here. And yet, I mean, what I find so fascinating about um, this work is that because it's such a, um, it uses such pared down materials and vocabulary, I feel like it has, I mean, if there's this cliche about new art uh, forces us to see new things. And I think it's really true that in the case of this very um, pared down work, it recalibrates your vision to make you much more sensitive to all these subtle Nuances. So, for instance, when I look at this painting, I know intellectually that it all came from one can of black paint, but I see a huge range of color. A lot of that is from the, reflect, the, the difference in reflectivity from area to area. None of, and none of that necessarily Stella could have planned or controlled, but it still is this effect of it being a real physical painted object in the real world that he had to um, achieve through... Um, even if it is sort of a straightforward procedure of, you know, and if you see the pictures of him working on this painting, it's quite striking because if you compare in your, in your memory, if you've seen, for instance, um, the famous images of Pollock working on his canvases on the, the, the ground, and it's all this amazing sort of um, balletic um, uh, Movements you can see, you can you can pick out like wrist movements, arm movements, bodily movement. Stella, there's pictures of him working on the black paintings, and it's it's not just that he adopted the house painter's materials and tools, but he tried to also adopt the entire um, demeanor. So he's sort of two feet on the ground, right in front of the painting, extremely controlled, extremely just. Um, up and down, careful, deliberate, um, but nonetheless, you know, the surface is alive with activity if you sort of tune down your your volume to that to that point. Any other um, 
observations about the work or questions that you might have? No, you're noticing something that's real. He didn't use a rag, but um, and I should have mentioned this. This is important about these pieces. He, um, this is painted on a canvas, but the canvas was not prepared. You know, conventionally, the the material is primed with um, you know white or tinted, whatever kind of primer, and that seals the surface of the fabric, so it protects it protects the canvas um, for one, and it also could, depending on your preference as a painter, it could give you a very, very uh, sort of up to a very slick, impermeable surface. But because he didn't put any primer on at all, that's why you get this really soft effect. And, um, and of course, it causes conservation problems. But, um, and that's why you get the variety. Because enamel paint usually gives you a glossy finish. And if he had used this on a nice... Um, sanded piece of wood or a, a wall that had been prepared correctly, it would be uniformly glossy. But that's why you get this um, uh, softness around all of the bands. Yeah. Explain the enamel, why he selected that. It's an unusual choice. Yeah, no, the house paint. Um, Part of it is because uh, it was economical. He would be able to buy uh, cans of paint from the hardware store for sort of a dollar each, and he was working as a house painter, and so um, that was part of it, was availability and economy. Um, part of it was wanting to sort of step away from traditional art materials. Um, of course, painters had been using house paint before, um, you know, famously Pollock um, and others, but Stella was taking it further in inviting even more non-art associations because Pollock using house paint, he's still trying to really personalize it and activate it, whether it's through mixing, layering, you know, splattering, dropping, dripping. Um, Stella's not. He's, 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 he's letting his day job bleed into his, his artwork. And that's very, um, this openness to non-art uh, uh, content um, is, is one of the big turning points for the 60s, and you see that happening across all media after this. Yeah. Uh, so I guess you seem to be emphasizing the way he was depersonalizing yeah. his work in comparison to abstract expressionism, but right. I suppose you could also reverse it and say that he was sort of personalizing house painting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way of thinking about it. It's true. I mean, there's, it's not like he was um, giving up his identity as an artist. Um, and it's, it's, it's uh, just on a um, sort of a, a, a note about his career. I mean, as I mentioned before, he was only 22 when he started this series, um, and by 1950, which was 58, and then 59, and he only graduated from college in 58. In 59. Um, these works are being included in an exhibition at MoMA, and he's joined Leo Castelli's gallery. I mean, it, it had a huge impact on his sort of visibility as an artist. Yeah, I mean, when he made it, I mean, this is this is one of those examples where, you know, prior to this, I think it's, you know, there's definitely Stella paintings prior to this that might be of interest to you, especially if you're an art historian. Um, but I think in in... Uh, in his telling of it, he was still basically a, paint, uh, a college student who liked to paint, you know. And then it was it was only after he 
he graduated and then he thought he was going to go into the army. He ended up being rejected for medical reasons and that was his opportunity. He said, I hightailed it to New York and that's when he really made, I think, probably the psychological shift to being like, now I'm an artist and what am I going to do? You know, whereas before he was like, I'm a student and I'm a painting student, I like to paint, but it wasn't, you know, the, the commitment, you know, the, the decision to sort of voice this is it, and this is who, how I'm going to represent myself as an artist. And for that first body of work to be so recognized, it's kind of remarkable. It's one of those, John's is a little bit the same, but Stella's an even more dramatic example. I mean, how does paintings relate to the sculpture? I'm thinking about the sculpture that's in front of the National Gallery. Oh, yeah. Well, no, no, I, 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 do, I do know that work a little bit. I think that's from the... 80s. It's much later. Yeah. He he starts as um, obviously he starts as a painter, and I don't I'm not sure what year the sculpture starts. It's not until uh, I, I believe it's not until maybe even the 80s actually or the late 70s. But this treatment of the work, you know, with this very thick um, stretcher and it kind of jutting like asserting itself off the wall a little bit as an object. Um, it kind of makes sense that he moves very seamlessly into three dimensions. And those divisions between two-dimensional and three-dimensional work start getting pretty broken down in the 60s is one of the interesting things that happens. Yeah. Yes. Good point. That is absolutely the missing link between the two because one of the things, of course, that Stella is well known for are shaped canvases. And with the very next, he does a um, two different metallic paint series after the black ones, copper and um, aluminum. And those are the ones that start, first it starts with these pretty modest little notches and just taking out the corner or taking out something in the middle and shaping the canvas that way. But then... I mean, it's partly because he has more resources available to him. He has studio assistants. He has all kinds of people constructing things for him. And he does very elaborate shaped canvases. And that absolutely is, is where the sculptures come from. Is there a catalog resume of his work? Um, because he's still making work, I'm not sure. I'm sure one, he, I do know that he has a really um, uh, active... Um, studio himself, and I, I would suspect that if, I don't think there, there is one of both the paintings and the sculptures, but I, I'm sure Frank has good, um, good uh, uh, archival work happening, and I'm, I'm sure it will happen, yeah. Where's the studio? Uh, New York, yeah, still New York, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming out for the gallery talk. I really enjoyed it. Thanks.